Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by Richard Strutzi Heckler, author of Embodying the Mystery. Among many other topics, Richard discusses the wisdom of the body, the practice of letting go of and letting go into, having fear and anxiety as your allies, warrior spirituality, and the idea that to be on the path is the path. Also, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts or the YouTube channel. Be sure to hit that like button and notification bell. Your support is truly appreciated. Richard Strozzi Heckler has a PhD in psychology and is a Shihan seventh degree black belt in Aikido. A nationally known speaker, coach, and consultant on embodied leadership and mastery, he has spent more than five decades researching, developing, and teaching somatics to business leaders, executive managers, teams from Fortune 500 companies, NGOs, technology startups, nonprofits, and the U.S. government and military. He was featured on the cover of the Wall Street Journal for his groundbreaking leadership program for the U.S. Marine Corps and was named one of the 50 top coaches and profiles in coaching. He is the founder of the Strozzi Institute, where he teaches courses on somatic coaching and leadership in action. He is the author of nine books, including In Search of the Warrior Spirit, The Leadership Dojo, and The Art of Somatic Coaching. Embodying the Mystery is his latest publication. Richard. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you for having me on, Nick. Okay, well, thank you. And congratulations on the publication of Embodying the Mystery. I'm very much looking forward to speaking with you about it. And I'm really interested in how we hold trauma and our life experiences in our body. You know, like many others, I always had this tendency to live in my head. And I figured that that's where all my trauma lived too. But my perspective started to change a bit. I had been familiar with the work of Wilhelm Reich on his idea of muscular armor. Didn't know much more except for that. But one of my best friends, who was also my roommate, began training as a massage therapist. And I was her practice dummy. And it was then that I learned the truth of how much we hold in our bodies, because as she would practice on me every now and then she'd hit a spot and I would have this emotional release. And for me, it was just laughter. I would just start giggling. And so I, I wanted to begin by asking you about somatics, especially for anyone, any of my listeners who may not be familiar with it, because with what I just said, I think I'm describing somatics that we hold our emotions and our histories and our traumas within the body. But I wanted to ask you if that's right. And in what ways would you expand upon that? Let me start by saying that soma is a early Greek word that I think we can roughly translate as the, the living body in its wholeness. Somatics is the art and science of the soma, which is now a certified field, you know, in psychology and academia and so forth. And basically the idea here is that there's not these smokestacks of there's a body, there's a mind, there's a spirit, that we have this shape. I call this the shape of our livingness. And in the shape of our li livingness or soma 
if you will, lies, our emotions, our history, our, our wounds, the healing from our wounds, our moods, our, our images, our thinking, it all occurs right here. So even early on, when we were talking and you said you thought this was in your mind or in your head, is that what we were, and you were pointing to your head, it's that that's part of the body too. Right. Oh yes, it, 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 Soma includes all of those things. Okay. Yeah. It, I, I think that, you know, my pointing to my head is that we all have inherited this sort of dualism. And you mentioned that in the book, you know, that we get it from, especially Descartes, although there's predecessors for that, you know, that there's this mind body division. And what you're saying is that it's instead it's this integral or interconnected whole. Correct. Correct. Perfect way of saying that, that there's the, yeah. In other words, sometimes we, we talk about this as the shape of our experience right here. Right, right, right. And, you know, your book, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily call it a spiritual biography, though it does rely on personal stories that illustrate these moments of of great learning and insight. And much of this is based in your early experiences with martial arts and sports as well. But one of the first stories that you tell, and I don't want to go into all of the stories. I want to kind of focus on some of the, the ideas here, but I thought that we could maybe talk about just this one story because I really liked it because it was learning the wisdom of body and spirit through your grandmother, who you called Baba. And I just remember there was a scene of you massaging her feet. And so I was wondering if you could maybe say a few words about what you learned from Baba. Yeah, Baba, her, her she was a Swedish immigrant, came over here, I think when she was 14. And her name was Alba. And as a child, because I was raised by her and my mother, my father was in the Navy, he would be out at sea. So she had a great influence on me. And I shape-shifted Alba into Baba. Mm. And the side story here is that my sister's children call grandchildren call her Baba, which she's happy with. She was a deeply spiritual person. She, she led seances for the Swedish community in Montana. You know, she read tea leaves and she really understood the nature of healing and touch, the importance of it. And she made her life by a working class background where she was in hospitals as an orderly. You know, she cleaned bedpans and, and swept floors and I think consoled a lot of the people. But, you know, she, she would take me into these seances when I'm about five years old, a darkened room, a table with a candle on it, maybe a group of about six Swedish immigrants there with their hands on the table, and she would invoke the spirits, so to speak. They would ask questions, yes or no answers, and the table chair would bounce once for no and two for yes. And I tell the story because there, was, there wasn't like, it wasn't sanctimonious. It wasn't like, oh, now we're going to be psychic and spiritual is what we did on Friday nights. Hmm. So it was routine. It was regular. And afterwards, we'd go out and they would drink black coffee and eat Swedish, Swedish bread, Svenska Bulla. But she also was in the Unity Church as a Unitarian. Mm -hmm. So sometimes she would come home from the hospital, take off her shoes and ask if I take off her, her bindings for her 
blood vessels and say, would you here, come massage my feet? And as she did this, you know, Nick, she would teach me. I didn't know that then, but I looked back and she'd go, you can use more pressure there or really extend your mind into this area. She said, when you do this part here, imagine the, the cross that's on the uni unity cross, Christian cross, imagine that. So I call her really my first bodywork teacher. And she did that all with great generosity, kind, and lovingness. Yeah, wonderful story. One of the things that I noticed in reading your book is there's something that appears several times. And it's this idea of letting go and letting go into. And I wanted to ask you to discuss this a little bit more. I think that most people, understand the idea of letting go of something. But what exactly do you mean by letting go into? Mm -hmm. You know, my, my second book was entitled The Anatomy of Change. And essentially, it was really about how do we go through transitions? How do we go through changes that were really inform me by my own personal experiences? And not so much that there would be like a cognitive map of it, but there would be something that we could do in our body that we could release. And once we release there, what opened for us. Hmm. So the, the, the falling, the letting go into something was informed by, there was this time where I changed the, the direction of my work. I moved, I, my, one relationship ended, moved to a different place. So there was a lot of transition. And I saw that in order to move through this intelligently and, and gracefully, and also use it as some kind of productive knowing, I would have to take my metaphor, I had to take things out of my pack. Hmm. Otherwise, I would be stuck, caught in obstacles, doing really silly things. And then what occurred to me there was the notion once this letting go began to happen, if I was open and not going, oh, I'll go back to my old habits and routines and practices, but I would stay open to what was occurring, a new vista would be there. It wouldn't be necessarily like an opening, but it would show up either as a mood, an emotion, an image, and sometimes even a, like a, a name or a place are a word on a marquee. And I thought, oh, this is what I need to let go into now. Mm. Yeah. And that seemed to be a really a ongoing cycle or a gestalt that I've seen throughout my whole life, especially if one is committed to the spiritual path. Mm. So it's a kind of surrender and trust. Correct. Yeah. It's a surrendering. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people have a lot of resistance to letting go that we have this tendency to hold on to things, to situations and people. And I think out of fear, you know, either fear of change, fear of hurting those people who are in our lives, it seems that this resistance can manifest in a number of ways through 
creative blockages, spiritual blockages, but it can also manifest in the body. Is that right? Absolutely. You know, I, I think that the, I'm speaking pretty much in the West here mm -hmm. about that our institutions have really failed us about how we move through transitions. Mm -hmm. So if we move towards some kind of awakening, one of the first insights that we will have will be, oh, everything is moving in, in transition and change and impermanence. Mm -hmm. And that inside of that notion of letting go, we're not really taught about what that means and, and what happens there. So there's a kind of a gripping around the status quo. Mm -hmm. So even if somebody says, oh, I see this is really complete. I need to let go of it. There's often the place where there's some place in the body that is still clutching mm -hmm. or still gripping or the hemispheres of the brain are starting to hold down on something. Right. And if we don't, I've seen over and over with all the thousands of people I've worked with, if we don't begin to release those, that they can become to reify in the body as Wilhelm Reich called it, muscular arming, armoring. And that can lead towards dis-ease and certain kinds of illnesses. So I claim, and what we do at Strozzi Institute is we work through the body, on the body, with the body, and through the body so that these places that are held or contracted can start to release. Mm. What I found out is that when that happens, there's two polarities that people can go to. One will be fantastic, what a dream. I feel more alive, I feel more fulfilled, I feel more expressive. The other part is that individuals can go, this is a nightmare, who am I now? I'm doing these things that seem to bring other people in, doing things now and behaving that other people get moved away from. And it can be a time of not only great learning and growth, but a time of great challenge of, uh, beginning to deconstruct how we've created our lives mm -hmm. that have kept us in a certain box into a bigger, bigger possibility. Right. And you wrote something, I think your line was, I found myself by being lost. And you also included along those lines, one of my favorite quotes, and it's the quote I use as my email tag, actually, and it's by Henry David Thoreau and, and Walden, where it was, not till we are lost. In other words, not till we have lost the world, do we begin to find ourselves and realize where we are in the infinite extent of our relations. Love that quote. Yeah. Love that quote. And I, I want to say that it's definitely my experience, how that quote is so encapsulated. And is definitely my experience in working with individuals, teams, and organizations that at some point, some, the flow of, can I use the word destiny, the flow of the arc of our life, the flow of an organization comes to a point in which it is no longer as effective as it used to be. Mm. And the question is, what do I need, need now to let go of or reintegrate so that I can expand more into a life of fulfillment and, and richness? And, and, you know, I'll, I'll say that one of the things that happened for me in psychology and being a body-oriented therapist is where I started, is that psychology can take us to the insight 
to the portal. It, and that's very important, but it doesn't necessarily take us through the portal. We understand why we got here. We understand the effects of that now. That awareness can give us choice, but it doesn't necessarily have us be new actors in the world. So I go, oh, my shoulders are up in my ears like this. And I see they're here and it says, I'm a, it's because I'm afraid, but there's nothing to be afraid of. Right. So then I go, huh, but my shoulders are still up there. And if my shoulders are up here, I'll be predisposed to fear. Mm. I may think in my head, I'm not afraid. And that thought is true for yourself, but this will keep us predisposed to fear. Mm. And so consciously adjusting the shoulders, does that then help release that fear? It makes us less predisposed to fear. Okay less predisposed. You know, fear is a powerful, powerful emotion. I think in many ways it runs neck and neck with love. Mm. But as I learned from one of my teachers, Tibetan teachers, is that if we own our fear, is that we can have the opportunity and possibility of really being in an inquiry of fearlessness so it's not that I have fear, how I'm going to let go of it, get away from it. We ask our questions, how does it live in me? How does it show up as a sensation? Where is it? And, you know, Nick, I grew up in a generation of men that you never said you were afraid. Right. It'd be like you had a virus hmm. and nobody else wanted to be around you. And then there was a period of time where I was reading the Odyssey and Ares is having a conversation with Odysseus because he's going into battle and he said, you must take Demos and Phoebos into the battlefield. And I was like, well, that means anxiety and fear. And I was like, what? Nike tells us no fear. <laughs> mm -hmm. All that BS. So I was that which just struck me really powerful, something I could chew on for like 15 years. Mm -hmm. And from my view is that we can know that we have fear, but if we actually feel how it runs through our body, we have much more choice in being able to work with it. Right, right. That I can relate to that in the sense of more so anxiety in my life rather than fear. And something I learned a couple of years ago was that I had this realization that no matter what I do, the anxiety will always be there. And it wasn't an issue of getting rid of it, but actually acknowledging it and working with it and working with how it manifests in the body and having it almost become something of an ally to me. Much of what I think what Aries was telling Odysseus, you know, that the, the fear and the anxiety can serve as allies to you if you know how to work with them. Yeah, well said, well said that we, we, we find it, we, it becomes an ally good word and becomes yeah. a friend. And then maybe we can say, oh, thanks for coming up and telling me I may be a threat, but that's how it was when I was 20 years old. Now I'm this age is no longer. So you're still, you're still in my house, but you can take right. a seat down, down the table. Right, right, right. Well, and I also wanted to talk to you a little bit about this sort of, I guess, 
masculine spirituality, because that is something, you know, you just mentioned it a little bit ago about how, you know, in your generation, men are not allowed to have fear. And in general, there was this suppression of many other emotions. And, and you wrote, you know, quite movingly about your relationship with your father, both the profound hurt and profound insights that you experienced. And, you know, you talk about the father-son wound, and that's just one aspect, I think, of masculine spirituality. But the other thing that you talk about, and this seems to be a running theme for me, that I keep coming across it a lot, is this idea or this archetype of the warrior and the warrior spirituality. I recently interviewed an author, Jim Morris, and that was a central idea in his experience. You know, he had been a former soldier, and then after that, he studied Carlos Castaneda and Don Miguel Ruiz. And so the warrior is there. I had another guest months ago, Angel Millar, who wrote a book about masculine spirituality that he titled The Path of the Warrior Mystic. I know that Trunkpa, you know, he has the, the, the sacred path of the warrior. And it seems like this is a primary archetype for masculine spirituality, certainly not the only one, but a kind of a foundational but I always find it kind of paradoxical. And I was hoping that maybe you could speak to that because I find it paradoxical that the warrior could serve as a spiritual model, as a spiritual archetype. Yeah, let me, that, that's, let, let me start by saying that, you know, it, in, in the mid 80s, 1980s, I did a classified project with the Army Special Forces and wrote a book called In Search of the Warrior Spirit. It was actually my journal. And then it was declassified. They, when it was declassified, the publisher said, would you like to publish it? So this is like in his fourth edition because I also went to Afghanistan and Iraq and worked with NATO and so forth. So I was in the Marine Corps myself. I, I, I was deeply in, into that question. I, I'll start by saying that because you might be a soldier or a Marine or a Navy SEAL, doesn't, I don't hold that it means you're a warrior. Mm. And you can be a warrior and also be very tender hearted. And I think the key for this notion of masculine spirituality or warriorship really has to do that we, we're not afraid of being who we are which takes a deep, deep introspection and a deep journey into the soul and, and the self about who we are and discovering that so much of, of how we act as males now has been inherited by the social context. Mm. And, 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 we are, and we've adopted some of these things so we belong and it makes us feel safe and so forth. And I'm really happy to hear that there's a lot of people, I think, looking at this notion in an intelligent way. Right. Do you think that culturally we have a distortion of what a warrior is? Generally, I think we definitely have a distortion that the warrior is somebody who's going to go into battle against an opponent or an enemy and win. Mm. This distinct, I mean, and that is really a tradition of, of bifurcation between the self, in other words, the, the notion that there's, there's these separate selves that live in these bodies distinct from we're all interdependent mm -hmm. with each other, totally interdependent. And that the, the, the phrase that comes up to me in this conversation is in the Upanishads, but it says, where there's the other, there's fear. Mm. 
So if we continue to make an opponent or an enemy, which is really in our, the, 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 the mutations in our language these days is doing that all the time. You know, we're vilifying considered thought. We're vilifying a heartfelt feeling for somebody else. What we're supporting is an anger against the other. And if some way, if I can destroy them or change them, it'll all be okay. And I think this is a really a fundamental piece that we're facing as we're looking at all these elements, even the climate crisis, where we've made ourselves separate from, from nature mm -hmm. and, and creating all this mischief that's happening in the world. Right. It's a big chew. It's a big chew. But we would say that's what a warrior does, takes these things on in a very sincere way. Right. Yeah. And it something that came up when you were speaking is this idea of the warrior. Not, you know, that I, I think we have this idea of the warrior that their whole purpose is just to fight. But the warrior is actually there to help create peace in many ways and to ensure justice and whatnot um and also while you were speaking it you know you mentioned the upanishads i you know the bhagavad-gita came to mind with you know that's also set on war and but it's you know this literal war but it's also an inner war that you know arjuna is engaging with his self and his lower self. So it, 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 I find it a fascinating archetype. And I also like what you said about climate change, because something that I often ask guests when we talk about the many environmental crises that we're facing is I will ask them, do you have hope? And I had someone recently say just flat out, he's like, nope, <laughs> I don't have hope. But he said that he thought that that wasn't the correct virtue. That the correct virtue that's needed right now is courage. Yes. And it seems to me that that's one of the primary virtues of the warrior is courage. You know, just today I saw a short video, you know, there's these large floods that are happening in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. And then this one family was stranded and they were like really on the verge of drowning in this person jumped in, went over to them and basically saved them. And then they didn't even know his name, had never known him before. After that, uh, you know, they got separated. But I thought this was the this was a warrior's act. Mm. Yeah, this was a warrior's act, the courage to jump into this fast moving river in himself, and to do this and save somebody and not going now where's the we're CNN so I can be on TV, you know, right. And you learned the how to be a warrior, I think, not just in serving in the Marines, but well before that with your study and practice of martial arts. Is that correct? That is very correct. And all of the martial arts teachers that I had who were exemplary martial artists and the beginning martial arts were combatives. Either they were sports or you, you learned how to hurt, take somebody down. Aikido is very different is that what you're doing is you're wanting to neutralize the aggression, not neutralize the person. Mm. But all of these teachers were adamant that it was only in the most dire or extreme situations will you use this to hurt somebody. 
in other words, it, and they were very capable of that. They were excellent teachers of that, but they also taught just not the technique, but they taught the way, mm. the way of being in the world that, you know, it's served me my whole life. I started when I was about between 11 and 12, because I'd get in these scraps at school, moved around a lot as a Navy kid. You know, my mother thought I was a bully. I was basically afraid. Mm. But when people call me names, I could I could go with that. But if I got shoved, I would shove back. And she said, what am I going to do with this guy to a vice principal? He said, put him in judo, horror fighter. He'll mm. fight better. She says, no, he'll learn discipline. Mm. And that's what happened. I went to a big Navy hangar. Basketball's going on, wrestling's going on, volleyball's going on. And all of a sudden, there's a little knot of about a dozen men in these white uniforms throwing each other over their shoulders. Guy that got thrown got up with a big smile on his face, threw the other guy down. And wow, I thought I was, I thought I was a Catholic, you know, at the Vatican. And I thought, I don't know what this is about, but I want some of that. Hmm. Got hooked. Yeah. You still practice, I assume? I still practice Aikido. I still, my teacher is still alive. Okay. One of my living teachers still. I still practice Aikido. I still teach Aikido. Where I live is a small working ranch, but I turned a barn into a dojo. Mm. So my joke is it's a 50-yard commute from my house to the, <laughs> to the, to the dojo. Yeah. yeah. 50 yard commute is very appealing, especially to someone who currently lives in Southern California. I, just a, a kind of a personal question in a sense is, is there an age limit as to when someone could begin practicing Aikido? No, not at all. Not at all. I will, after the pan, after the pandemic eased down a little bit and now we're, everybody has to be vaccinated. In other words, I'll make this a short story. We're, we're, we, we move back into the dojo. In, in a safe atmosphere. Right. But I think a lot of people, when the pandemic happened, it was like the, the hamster wheel broke. Mm. People fell out and went, wow, what was I doing with my, my life? And so many people now are starting to come to Aikido and they're in their 50s, 60s, mm. and 70s. Right. You know, and really recognizing there's some things they can't do because of the, the where they've taken care of their body or not, or injuries, but you can really embody the principles for mm -hmm. sure. My, my, my colleague and good friend, George Leonard, wrote a book at one point in which he, it was an article in Esquire magazine, and it said, getting your black belt at 50. Mm -hmm. And it kind of broke the four minute mile in Aikido. Now we have people in their 60s and 70s getting their black belt. So all you folks out there, go watch a class, ask yourself three questions. Can I learn from this person? Is it relevant to what I'm doing? And do they look like they're having fun? Mm. Yeah, those are good questions, even outside of the Aikido. Yes. Be good questions to ask in, in, in general. Yeah, I was just curious because it's something that, you know, I've never actually explored it. But there is something that seems very appealing to me. And I'm 54 and there was this part of me, it's like, nah, that's too old. So that was what was behind that question there. So it's very encouraging to know that there's no age limit to it. So I wanted to ask another question. You were talking about 
some of the so along the lines of you know the sort of masculine spirituality and the repression of things you also mentioned a, another archetype of sorts not the warrior but the I guess I would call it the frontiersman, which is central to the American experiment, right? And we have all these frontier virtues of like individualism and self-reliance, you know, man against nature. And I'm specifically saying man instead of humanity there to entail that this is a gendered thing in our history, you know, and it's the you know, quote, civilized American against the quote, uncivilized Native American. And there are benefits to this idea, of the pioneer, you know, I think that individualism, self-reliant, cunning, these are all good virtues. But you also point out that there's a dark side to all of this with, you know, genocide and oppression of the indigenous people, domination of nature, racism, and I would also add, you know, domination of women. And there seems to be a lot of repressed emotion there as well. Fear, anger, rage, shame. And when I was reading this section in your book, it occurred to me that we seem to be suffering from this as a nation. That it's the, again, the repressed emotions. And along those lines, you talk about emotional literacy. And I wanted to ask, is this what you mean by emotional literacy, understanding these repressed emotions? Yes, that we come to an understanding that our emotional life will tell us what matters to us. Mm. It'll tell us what we care about. And if those things that we it start to emerge and comes, come out, like one feels tender, towards, let's say a man feels tender towards another man. And immediately what may come up will be the shibboleth that happens around, well, does this mean homosexuality? And distinct from, oh, it's another human being that I admire and I can feel close to and, and feel tender about what he's suffering with, for example. But because of all of the conditioning we have from the social context, you know, it begins to smother all that and sends us down a narrow line. And then from there, as you say, then there's a lot of internal repression that happens. And again, I'll turn to our, our original, one of our original themes, which is that you can be aware of that, but those things are in our, that's in our tissues. It's mm -hmm. in our musculature. It's the way the organs correspond with each other in a very direct and immediate way of dealing with that is working through the body, through mm -hmm. body work, through somatic awareness, through som somatic practices and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Vanderkop, who was a one of the leaders in, in really looking at trauma, PTSD, in a lot of different areas. At some point when he had this realization, he said, everything I've done before, I want you to forget about it because what we have to do is we have to process it through the body. And more and more people are getting skilled at doing that too. We have whole programs called Somatics, Trauma, and Resilience mm. that we teach teach people in the healthcare professions. Mm. Yeah, I, I maintain that we're all traumatized. <laughs> I think we're all traumatized in a variety of ways. But, and this kind of leads me into something else that you 
talked about, and this also goes back to this idea of this duality that many of us still hold. And, and I see this a lot in America is this focus on when it comes to spirituality, this focus on spirit as being disembodied as being, you know, definitely not physical, you know, it's that, you know, there's the spiritual realm and then there's this realm. And it seems that healing has to come from not focusing on the spirit or recognizing, let me rephrase that, recognizing that the spirit is embodied, that it's an embodied spirit. Yes, and to use a pretty well-used phrase, it also creates this spiritual bypass. Yes, I was going to ask if that's what was going on. We have this spiritual bypass where it's like, oh, I'm not going to face this in myself because it's just the realm of emotions and body. So I will jump over that Mm -hmm. to this other, this this idea of spirit. Mm -hmm. But really it lives in just, just in the realm of idea or concept. And what we do is that we begin to further separate ourselves from the livingness that we can actually feel right here and right now. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, the, I would say my learning is the body is the, is the portal for that. Mm-hmm. You know, they say Hari Mandir, I think in Hindi, which is, it's the temple. And we can go into that, this temple and then find spirit in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you've mentioned portal a couple of times, and I know in the book, you connect the portal, this idea of a portal into a larger reality, phrase it that way, with experiences of ecstasy. And here, ecstasy, we kind of literally mean an experience of being sort of outside of yourself. And so it seems on one hand that you know, when we hear about these sort of non-ordinary states of consciousness and ecstasis, right, that that seems to feed into this idea of, you know, spirit as being disembodied. But it seems to me that what's at the core here, you know, I'm thinking in terms of like Plato and his allegory of the cave of the prisoner who gets out of the cave and experiences, you know, this true reality, which is not of this world, but then they, they have to go back into the cave. And it seems like that spiritual bypassing is people saying, well, no, 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 I want to stay in this other realm. And that what's going on here and what you're teaching is that no, 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 we have to go back into the cave. We have to go back into the body, but carry this wisdom and knowledge with us. Yeah, let me take this moment as as we're talking about these going back into the cave Mm -hmm. is that what I would make a claim that one of the reasons that it's so easy for us to pollute our waters and stain our air and poison our land is that we're out of touch with our bodies. Mm -hmm. And when I mean body, I mean the capacity to feel. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by feel is not so much I have a feeling or emotion, although that may happen, but I get in touch with this animating principle, this core energy that moves through me that actually is always an affirmation for life. And I would further say that one of the reasons that so much conflict so easily moves and precipitates into violence is the same thing. We're really out of touch with our bodies. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that this gap 
between those that have and those that don't have or the gap between my race and your race or my gender and your gender and so forth is that we're really out of this touch with feeling this common denominator that we all share that we could call the animating principle, spirit or energy or ki or chi or those things and that it's a unifying factor. Yeah, thank you for that because that was actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you because the the line you have in the book is to know life directly we must feel. And when I read that, I'm like, you know, on the surface it seems really easy to understand. But then I started thinking, well, but what exactly do you mean by feel? That it's probably not quite as simple as that. And you know, it is interesting. I mentioned to you before we began recording that there was someone that you listed in your acknowledgments that I also know, Dr. Rena Sinkar, who I knew from the California Institute of Integral Studies. And class I took with her, she actually taught us a Buddhist meditation technique of going in the body, checking in with the body. And I find that so important because I think a lot of people, when they think think about meditation, they're still stuck in the head and not thinking about checking in with the body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Dr. Sikar, Rena Sikar, you know, I can just take a moment to acknowledge and bow into her. And I didn't spend a lot of time with her, but you talk about that practice of she taught you in class. Well, a couple times I spent 10 day retreats with her. So we did that for, <laughs> we yeah. did that for about 15 hours a day. Yeah. And she, she lovely heart, lovely ge- generosity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's this place where, you know, we see these models in our religions where people are in the clouds or they're outside in some kind of a way. Yeah. And it's, it's it, from my view, it, it's just a, it's a misnomer and really a huge mistake and leads to a lot of mischief yeah. and a lot of aggression and violence. And sure. as we begin to separate, well, who are they in my heaven or not in my heaven? Right. And the other then shows up. Yeah. When I also, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Let me just say that I think your question about what do we mean by feel is right on because operationally is that it really is shifting the attention from the thinking self to the feeling self. Mm. And feeling self really means you start with sensation. What is sensation? You feel temperature in your body. You feel shape in your body, holding shape of my feet on the floor, my sit bones. And there's movement because my breath is moving my rib cage and all around that way. I'm moving from thinking about the world, making up stories about the world, and then actually feeling this life energy moving through me. And that becomes foundational for, for growing into deeper, deeper possibilities about wisdom and compassion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. And it takes me back to this idea that I think many people aren't experiencing that, you know, because it seems like I'm going to steal a phrase from someone else that this feeling is the way it was worded is the felt presence of immediate experience. And that's what we need to be in. But so many of us 
seem to not be in that felt presence. You know, we're worried about tomorrow. We're worried about yesterday. We're worried about the boss. We're worried about the partner and things like that. And it seems like the benefit here is we need to stop and feel ourselves and feel our lives. I'm with you, brother. Yeah, yeah. I'm with well, you. You know, the our, our educational system does not support that, even though now more and more, like there are the educators that I've worked with would initiate with their first, second, third, fourth graders, this notion of being centered, where you come back to your body, you ground yourself, you settle yourself, find your deep rhythmic breath. And she could go into a class and say, okay, let's all stand and center ourselves. So they have the opportunity before sitting down of actually coming into their bodies mm. and the whole stories that they have about this and the data that they've built is around this notion that, wow, there's, there's learning happens better. There's less conflict in the room. There's be better health and so forth. It's not rocket science. Right. Right. Well, it also seems to me that this sort of focus of spirituality outside of the body is probably in many ways connected to fear. And I would say fear of death because people want the spirit to be disconnected from the body. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, 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 I, I, I love this, the, the, what the 13th century Zen monk Dogen said when he said to to be on a path to be on a spiritual path I'm feeling in spiritual to be on a path of awakening that's how I would say it mm -hmm. he said to be on the path you need to study the self mm. to study the self you need to let go of the self to let go of the self leads you to become one with all things so we're back again to this place of like oh let go of the self and then there's this really big leap into be one with all things. What about my individuality? Mm -hmm. you know, what, what about my brushing my teeth in the morning? All of those things distinct from we're all sharing mm -hmm. the same sunshine, the same air, the same animating principle. Right. Yeah. And I, I teach that as well when I teach Buddhism is that, you know, what you lose is this individual immortal soul but what you gain in the process is becoming one with everything. Mm -hmm. But along with what you were just saying, you also mentioned at some point, I think, I don't believe I have the line here somewhere, but it was something like being on the path is to be the path. Do I have that right? Yes. To, to me, in, in my, my inquiry, uh -huh. Nick, is that we get to a place and if we, we, we stay with our practices over time, good, bad, the ugly. Like I say, you know, I've been doing a meditate, doing martial arts about 55 years, doing meditation for a little more than that. And I've had a lot of quarrels with God, but I keep doing the practices. Mm -hmm. And after a while, we can begin to trust our practices. And we go into an unknown situation. We don't have a script. We're not sure of what to do. And then we go, I can trust my practices because now they're embodied in me. So if I meet something untoward or I meet something that's difficult, something that's new, my practices will start to come through me. Mm. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, I like that quite a bit. I also, I know we're starting to run out of time here, but I wanted to ask you about something that you write towards the very end of the book. Well, actually, I've got two things. Let me start with this. You write about the the somatic path and you say that it is informed by an intelligence that is deeper than the rational mind, that there's this sacred trust in the ongoing flow of life. And this gets back to this idea of a felt lived experience. And I was wondering if you could talk about this intelligence a little bit. It's the intelligence of the body, or is there another intelligence that is beyond us, but that is also within us? Yeah, first of all, I want to say is that I'm not talking, I'm not talking against being rational or rational being. That's part, that's part of the Soma too. Mm -hmm. But in our educational systems where that becomes foreground, Mm -hmm. this notion of, is there a deeper wisdom in us? And what is that wisdom? And it has been pruned out of us. I would claim because of the, how we're educated, people will have experiences with psychotropic plants mm-hmm. or other psychedelics that open them up in very powerful ways. And what we see through that and being on path for a long time is that it's not so much the body, but it's the entering into the body, going inside of ourselves and recognizing that this shape is the result of 3 billion years of evolution. Mm. Extraordinary. Mm. I mean, extraordinary. And if we start to touch into that wisdom and compassion and intelligence, would it make our our relationship with the climate Mm. more in sync? Would it make our, our life with who we would call our opponents or enemies more friendly? I say yes. I say yes. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I I say yes as well. So the other thing I wanted to ask you about is, and this is what you have at the very end of the book. There's a short chapter on the sensation of longing. Mm. And you talk about nostalgia and you identify nostalgia as the longing to return home. Mm -hmm. And this resonates with me quite a bit. My roommate who practice used me as her dummy for massage she commented that she never knew how nostalgic i was that my nostalgia surprised her but you also talk about a homesickness sort of nostalgia is homesickness and i kind of experienced this as exile in a sense Mm. of not being in my homeland and i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about nostalgia in terms of our spirituality. Yeah, nostalgia, our longing, our, it's the, in the word fakir that the that Persian Sufis used where they talked about it being home, homesick. Hmm. And the image is you're sitting at the door and you're knocking at the door and waiting for that somebody to answer that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my experience of that, my exper- personal experience is there's this longing or urging for more. Mm. Even growing up, and I know I had excellent teachers that moved me towards this, and certainly my grandmother at an early age, but this notion that all these things that seem to be going towards a good life is like, who says so? Mm. Like, I'm going to have 
two cars and two and a half kids and a white picket fence. And I go, I think there's more than that. And I can't say really how that, that longing or urge or yearning for that came about other than what I just said in terms of early on my grandmother and then spiritual teachers. But the, for me, it's a felt experience. Mm. It's not like I want to, I want two Snickers bar instead of one, <laughs> you know, I want, I know that there's something in this life that I want to participate in and join with and be touched by that is just keeps pulling me forward. When I was, I said that to somebody the other day, because we were talking about my book and he said to me, well, do you mean you're not satisfied with your life? I said, no, I'm very satisfied with my life. I feel very fortunate, very privileged. I have the greatest life I can imagine. And is there more? Mm. Yeah. 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 Because when I think about nostalgia and home, I kind of think about a place, but I can also see where that is for me, at least in many ways, symbolic of an inner state of being as well, that that's where home is, is within. I, I, that's my experience that it really is a state of consciousness. And, you know, where I live now this year, I've been here 35 years. I'm have some acreage, very small acreage, maybe about 15 acres. And I can look out and probably 70% of the trees or 80% I, I planted. Mm. And, you know, I go out at night and as weird as the sound, you know, they're like my friends and amigos and my children. And I, in the, in the drought, I ask them how they're doing and we talk and uh, move with them. There's a big redwood right outside my house here. I can actually see it. And so this note, this, this, this feeling of it being an inner state for mm. sure, and at the same time, it's not disconnected right. from, from beauty. Right, right. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. A practice that I began a good 10 years ago is I began hiking every week. And I intentionally decided that I was going to hike the same trail every week not explore the other one. I mean, they're amazing trail and I could go to the other trail, but at least once a week, I hike the same trail. And I did that because I wanted to develop a connection to the place. And it's been really interesting over the past 10 years, how I noticed myself changing in many ways and my relationship to the land changing as I did this. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. You know, it reminds me that like, I'll show a person this move in Aikido, be like a real basic move when you're practice. And then the next class, I'll, I'll do it again. And they'll say, wait a minute, we already did that. Mm -hmm. And I said, look, that's 50 years ago. That was the first move I made. I'm still doing it. What mm -hmm. changes is me. Right. And I get to see my changes through that. I, I love your story. That's the same, same thing mm -hmm. about walking the same path. Yeah. 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 Well, and also the, the relate, you know, the, 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 the trees is like the children and whatnot. I found a tree and I only recently started doing this, but every time I hike, I have to stop at the tree and touch the tree. And I talk to the tree and 
I went on vacation, went back. And for me, this is home and this is feeds into the nostalgia, but I went back to Colorado and the last time I hiked before going on this trip, I stopped and I told the tree and I'm like, and I'll be back. And I ended, and it's kind of, it just came sort of naturally and it sort of surprised me, but I ended by telling the tree that I loved the tree, <laughs> you know? So yeah, it, doing that, walking the path and walking the path over and over changes you and it changes how you experience the world most definitely. And as we know more and more now, how sensitive those trees are. So I'm sure that it, listen to your love. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Well, it also makes me think about when I think about home, I think place does play a part. And I guess I'm thinking also in terms of many cities, but I think there's a feature, especially in Los Angeles, where there seems to be this sort of rootlessness, this homelessness. And I'm not talking about the you know, indigent, but I'm talking more about people just sort of flowing through these communities that we're building. And it's not just LA, but I can see this in a lot of other cities where we seem to have a disconnect to the places where we are. And that seems to be something that we really need to start embodying more because it seems like these cities are kind of disembodied. Yes. And I, I would say, I observe the same thing. And I think that when people don't have a stake in or accountability to place, it's much easier to trash it. Yeah, yeah. Not pick up after yourself because there's no investment in it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I, I know that we are pretty much out of time. So I wanted to ask you, what is next for you? What do you have coming up next? Mm. You know, after I finished the book, I had a big, about three months of a good solid out breath. Mm. I started writing again and, and taking some time to listen to the mystery, mm. both what, what does the world want of me now? What do I want of the world? Mm. And what I've come up with is that I can take more time with the small joys in life and really allow myself to sink into them and be with them. I wake up this morning, there's an overcast sky here, and one of the roses in my garden, which is a big vegetable garden plus a rose garden there, came out and the redness of it just was mesmerizing. So it wasn't so much me going, oh, the rose bloomed, but going, take some time with that. Just take some time with that. So it's, it doesn't sound huge, but it feels huge yeah. participating with the small joys. Yeah, for sure. Well, and, you know, I think that gets back to the world that we live in, that it's constructed in a way to prevent us from taking those moments. You know, it's always the hustle. It's always the being stuck in the commute and whatnot in artificial environments. And very rarely do we get the time or people, the ability to take that moment to feel that felt presence of immediate experience. I would add on to that by saying, looking or going into any kind of a public area and look at looking at all the bowed heads, mm, yeah. they're looking at their handheld device mm -hmm. and what's happening, what's how, how that particular shape of technology will begin to affect us in disappearing the world yeah 
Yeah, for sure. For sure. So where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Yeah, thank you. Strozzi Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, com will take you to our, our website. And Richard Strozzi Heckler, I've written a number of other books too, but our, we do courses, public courses for people in embodied transformation, embodied leadership. We do courses in somatics, trauma, and resilience. We do courses in somatic coaching. Mm-hmm. We also work with organizations of all types, as you saw in my bio. So strozzyinstitute.com, S-T-R-O-Z-Z-I. Okay, wonderful. I'll put a link for that in the show notes and the video description on YouTube. And Embodying the Mystery, is has that been published already or is it still a few weeks in the future? No, it's, it's been published. It's, it's available now. Okay, I'll put links for that as well. Thank in the you. Show notes and video description. Let All me right, just well, tell you just for a minute, the full title is Embodying the Mystery, the subtitle is The Wisdom, Somatic Wisdom in Emotional, Energetic, and Spiritual Awakening. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was a very enjoyable read. I think I learned a lot from it. So I encourage everyone to get a copy of it. And I really would like to read some of your other books. In particular, I'm interested in the search of the warrior spirit since this warrior archetype seems to be coming up for me a lot. So, so Richard, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for your willingness to speak with me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah. Thank you, Nick. And thank you for having me on. And as we say, at Strozzi Institute, take it easy, but take it. All right. Very good. Very good. All right. Thank you. And that's a wrap on episode 48 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help, especially if you listen on Apple. If you have a minute to spare, consider posting a short but positive review and please consider subscribing. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. Also, if you think a friend, family member, or even coworker might like this podcast, please share it with them. Right now, that is one of the best ways to help me with the podcast. I really do need to grow the audience. I also have a PayPal link set up if you would like to make a one-time donation and Hey, you can be the first person to do so. You can find the link for that in the show notes or video description. I'm also going to be launching a Patreon within the next few months. I have big plans for Rebel Spirit beyond the podcast. I do want to create more video content for the YouTube channel, and I'm planning some live stream episodes as well. The first will be with returning guest, uh, Dr. Sharon Kogan where she will offer a Jungian analysis interpretation of dreams for participants. We're still working on scheduling, but this will likely be at the end of October. So be sure to follow Rebel Spirit Radio on Facebook and or sign up for the newsletter at rebelspiritradio.com. That way you can be informed of all future live events and the launch of the Patreon. Implementing all of this is going to take time and resources, so anything you can do to help will be greatly appreciated. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, 
May you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.